0: Good morning. My name is Pam. The Old Testament reading is found in Ezekiel 11, verses 19 to 20. I will give them a single heart, and I will put a new spirit in them. I will remove the stony hearts from their bodies and give them hearts of flesh so that they may follow my regulations and carefully observe my case laws. They will be my people And I will be their
1: God. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Kay. The New Testament reading is found in Galatians 3 19 through 22. So, why was the law given? It was added because of offenses until the descended would come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, the mediator does not take one side, but God is one. So, is law against the promises of God? Absolutely not. If a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would, in fact, have come from the law. But scripture locked up all things under sin, so that the promise based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ might be given to those who have faith. The word of the Lord.
0: Thank you. you. Hello, I'm Tracy. Hi, Ken. If you're able to, would you please stand for the gospel reading? Today I'm reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. I say to you very seriously that as long as heaven and earth exist, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything becomes a reality. Therefore, Whoever ignores one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these commands and teaches people to keep them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I say to you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and the Pharisees, you will never Enter the kingdom of heaven. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord.
2: Please remain standing with me as we pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for gathering us here today in your name and in your presence with one another. We pray for those who are not able to be here this morning, those who are watching online, those who are homesick. We pray... That they would be healed in the name of Jesus. You would bring healing to those that we love, those who are part of this family or our extended families for dealing with one virus or another. We pray that you would bring healing to them. And we pray for all of us, both in person and online, that you'd speak to us this morning. That you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts that are receptive for whatever work that your spirit wants to do in us. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Great to see you this morning, New Life Downtown. When I was a kid, I grew up with uh, three brothers. Yes, four boys. You can pray for my mom. She's still in recovery uh, from that time. Uh, But when I was really little, my oldest two brothers are nine and 10 years older than I am, so they were my first babysitters. I'm still recovering uh, from that. Uh, But there became a time when they got old enough where they were in sports or had jobs that my parents had to start, you know, hiring people to come in and watch us when they couldn't. And as a kid, I remember that basically all babysitters fit in two categories. There were those that were fun and there were those that were not fun. Like that was kind of it. And really fun meant were they willing to go outside and play football with us or not? If they were not willing to go outside and play football or baseball, they fit in the not fun category. If they were willing to go outside, they were in the other one. Now, as a parent, I find that babysitters still fit in two categories. But the categories are now different. There are those who clean, and there are those who don't clean. Right? They watch like the CW shows on Netflix instead of actually cleaning. The truth is, is that Having a babysitter is fun, or having a babysitter that actually puts water in the spaghetti-like sauce pot when it's done, uh, those are bonuses. What we're really looking for when we're entrusting our kids to someone, or when someone was entrusting our parents or guardians were entrusting us into someone else's hands, we're really looking for someone who's going to keep us safe and healthy, right? We're, we want someone that's going to make sure that the environment is safe and that we eat more than just the cake and ice cream that there is for desserts. We want someone also that's going to help our kids be kind and make wise choices. Right? You don't want to come home to kids fighting or bloodied. Like that, that's not the goal of that kind of babysitting aspect. And perhaps maybe more than anything, we want them to be able to get our children to bed. Right? You need to get them from the dinner table to bed somehow before we get home so that we don't have to go through all of that. This morning we're walking through our series through the book of Galatians, the series that we're calling the Revolutionary Gospel, in which Paul is talking to the churches in Galatia about the sweeping impact of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And one of those sweeping impacts that we see is the inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God. The people of God is no longer restricted to Jews, but it's been thrown open to the nations. And one of the questions then that Paul is dealing with in Galatians is, who are God's people and how can you tell How does the world tell who the people of God are? I guess at that time there were no like fish magnets that you could put on the back of your donkey cart uh, or Celtic tattoos that you could get, you know, at at that point in time to identify. It's like, what is it that's going to identify the people of God? Previously, Jews had been identified by a certain set of practices called the works of the law. Things like circumcision, dietary laws, Sabbath keeping that distinguished them from Gentiles, that distinguished them from other nations. But as we see, we've seen in the book of Galatians so far, as Paul is saying, those are no longer the ID badges for the people of God. But instead, the ID badge for the people of God are those who have faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. Those that have put their faith, their whole life, their trust in the person of Jesus and what it is that he has done. That faith is now the ID badge. And last week as Pastor Glenn was here with us, he shared that that's actually not an innovation. That the people of God actually originally were identified by faith. That Abraham believed God And it was credited to him as righteousness. And then God made promises to him well before the law and the works of the law came into play. Well, this morning's text continues Paul's conversation about Abraham. But now he's exploring specifically the relationship between the promises that God made to Abraham, or you could say the inheritance that God promised Abraham, and the Old Testament law. Who will inherit these promises? On what basis is that going to be determined? Who's going to inherit what and why? If you've ever kind of gone through that process of filling out a will and doing all of those documents, or maybe you were named in a will, those are the kind of questions you have to wrestle with. Like, who's going to get the house Who's going to be the custodian for kids? Who's going to be awarded this or that thing from great-grandma and this thing or that thing from great-grandpa? And how are we deciding who gets that? Did they mention that one time and so now you think they want it, so that's what you're going to give to them? Like, How do all of those things work out? But for Paul and the Galatians, they're wrestling with it on these terms. Does the inheritance of Abraham go to those who keep the law, those who do the works of the law, or does it go to those who believe in Christ? And if it goes to those who believe in Christ, then what role does the law play? What role does the law play in the great story of God? And what role does it play in Christian life? For those who have come to faith in Jesus, what do we now do with this collection of laws that we find in the Old Testament? And so what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of walk through this passage Uh, kind of set up what it is that Paul's talking about. And then we're going to dive into various responses that Christians have had to the law, to the Old Testament. Hopefully you'll find it helpful as you're wrestling with those questions as well. So it begins Galatians chapter three, verse 15. If you have a Bible, you can follow along there or we've got a really bright screen right behind me uh, that you can see as well. So he says this, brothers and sisters, I'll use an example from human experience. No one ignores or makes additions to a validated will. So the will has gone into effect. No one's making additions to that after the fact. The, The will's been set. And so he says the promises, they were made to Abraham and to his descendant. It doesn't say, and to the descendants, as if it's referring to many. Instead, it's referring to just one. It says, and to your descendant. And then Paul claims that descendant is Christ. Paul here is actually referencing back to Genesis chapter 12, when God initially appears to Abraham and makes promises to him, and he's specifically referring to Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, where it says this, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I give this land to your descendants. Almost all of our English translations say descendants, but in the original language, it actually just says descendants. Descendants. It's singular in Hebrew. Paul, being a Jewish scholar, is picking up on this. He's saying, no, it says just one descendant. And then he's saying, ah, that descendant of Abraham that was promised all those things long ago, that's Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the rightful heir to that inheritance. That inheritance, inheritance specifically being the land, the land of Canaan. But we know in a larger spectrum, not just the land of Canaan, but the land of the whole earth in fact, all of God's kingdom, that Jesus is the one who's inheriting the kingdom of God and along with him, all those who are in Christ are described as co-heirs of that inheritance. He goes on and says this. He says, I'm saying this. The law, which came 430 years later, doesn't invalidate that agreement that was previously validated by God So that it actually cancels the promise. If the inheritance were based on the law, um, it would no longer be from the promise. But God has given it graciously to Abraham through a promise. Paul's given us a little bit of a historical argument here where he's saying God promised the inheritance of the kingdom to Abraham's offspring. That was 430 years before God made a covenant with Israel at Sinai, and we got all of these laws. 430 years later. So the inheritance was never actually based on the law. The inheritance was always based on the promise. In other words, he's saying that God's gracious promise predates God's good law. One doesn't trump the other. The law doesn't trump the promise. The promise predates the law. So the law can't invalidate that agreement. Inheritance doesn't come from those who keep the law, but from those who have faith. He's saying this is the basis. The basis for determining inheritance is faith in the faithfulness of Christ. Those are God's kids. Those are the ones who will inherit those who are in Christ. So if that's true, then the question that naturally follows then is, then why give the law to begin with? Like, that's a whole lot of pages in our Old Testament dedicated to that. Like, couldn't we have just skipped from Abraham to Jesus? Like, why all of that bother in the middle of those things? What was that all about? And secondly, if we understand what it's all about, what do we do with it now? Like, does God care how we live Does he care about what we do with those things? Or does he only care about what we believe or who we believe in? So he goes on and immediately starts addressing that question. Verse 19. So why was the law given? It was added because of offenses until the descendant, until Jesus would come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place through the angels by the hand of a mediator. I mentioned to Moses here. And now the mediator doesn't take one side, i.e., the Jewish side of things, but God is one. God can only have one family, Jew and Gentile. So he's saying the law was added temporarily due to Israel's offenses, due to their transgressions, due to their sin. It was put in place until the descendant Jesus would come. And then verse 21, so this is, so is the law then against the promises of God? No, absolutely not. If a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would have, in fact, come from the law. In other words, Paul, Paul's saying, hey, don't get this wrong. The law was never actually meant to do what you think it's doing. The law was never meant to give life. It was never meant to make people righteous. Abram was declared righteous because of his faith. He was a part of the people of God because of his faith, and therefore was also never meant to determine inheritance, And we all get this argument a little bit. We all have something in our house that we use in a way that it was never meant to be used for, right? Something that you picked up like at a garage sale or somebody gave you and you're like, I don't really know what to do with this. And you just found a use for it. And it doesn't actually quite work the way it's supposed to, even in that arena. But this is what we do with the law. We try to make it work in a way that it was never meant to work. This is Paul saying, it wasn't meant for that, And therefore, it's it's not actually against the promises. And then he wants to go on and clarify, well, what was it for then anyway? If it wasn't meant to give life and it wasn't meant to create righteousness, then why did it happen? And here he gets into the heart of what we're going to talk about today. Verse 22. But Scripture locked up all things under sin so that the promise based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ might be given to those who have faith. But before faith came, we were guarded under the law, locked up until the faith that was coming would be revealed. So that the law became our custodian, our babysitter until Christ, so that we might be made righteous by faith. Paul here is using this word custodian to describe the role of the law. Custodian is a technical term in the original language for a slave that would escort children to and from school. That This was kind of their role was to make sure in a Greek household that the kids got to school and back from school. Well, what was it that they were doing during that time? Well, there was a role that was about keeping the children safe from others, right? If you ever walked to school or rode the school bus to get to school, there is a part of like people who are working those crosswalks or people who are driving those buses, what's their role? They're meant to keep kids safe, safe from people that are not paying attention to stop signs, people that are driving crazy, people that might be bullies, you know, those older upperclassmen sort of kids in school wanting to take the lunch money, People protecting from, you know, when when I was a kid, it was stranger danger. Like everybody was a stranger and there was danger everywhere in those things. Keeping kids safe from negative influences of other kids that my mom and dad didn't want me to sit next to certain kids on the bus because they were a bad influence on me. There's a role that the custodian played in keeping kids safe. But then correspondingly, the the role was also to keep the kids out of trouble, right? Right? Some kids, maybe it was harder on one end or the other of saying like, okay, there's a lot of mischief that you could get into on the bus. Please don't do that. There's a lot of trouble you could get into in that time between when you leave the house and when you go to school or you come back. So the custodian was meant to sort of help guide behavior, to guide that, basically to keep kids from doing stupid things that they're going to later regret. But lastly, the custodian's role was to keep them on track to make sure the kids actually got to school and got home and got there on time, right? This is always the challenge of getting to and from. This is basically what Paul is saying was the role of the law. The role of the law was to keep Israel safe from outside negative influences, to keep Israel out of trouble to whatever degree that it could, and to make sure Israel got from Abraham to Jesus got from Abraham to the promised one. We could say it this way, that the law protected Israel from paganism, kept them worshiping one true God, Didn't, didn't always effective, but generally the flow of Israel kept them from the influence of paganism, guided Israel's ethics, how it is they were supposed to treat one another, and generally was meant to keep Israel on track until God fulfilled his promises, until Jesus came. But the law had a couple of major problems to it that Paul is trying to address. Problem one is that the law separated Jews and Gentiles. Why is that a problem? It's protecting them from these outside influences, right? Well, the problem is that the promise to Abraham was that Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations, that actually in Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed that God would do such a work in and through Abraham's family that would actually pour out into all of the other nations. Really difficult to do if you're separated the way that the law separated them. So something was going to have to change in order for the blessing to go out. The second problem is that the law couldn't transform the human heart. That was its bigger problem. Is that Israel... Though having a custodian, though having a law that was meant to protect them from paganism, still at times worshipped other gods. The law that was meant to guide their behavior and the way that they treated one another, still at times treated each other awfully. That was meant to keep Israel on track, actually did, though there were times that they ended up in exile and things didn't look like they were going to go the way they were supposed to. So the problem was never that the law wasn't good. The law has always been good. The problem has always been that the law wasn't enough. As Glenn said last week, the flaw was not with the law, the flaw is with us. The flaw is with the flesh, with what the law is trying to work at. And the law could never transform the human heart. What the law could do is instruct, but the law could never enable Here's an example of what I mean. Say there comes a day where Sarah decides, I am really tired of hearing Jason sing in church because it's just really bad. And so, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to hire the best music teacher I can find. She hires Joanna to come, and she's like, You know what, Joanna, I need your help. I just can't handle this anymore. I need you to teach him music and how to sing. But there's a problem. He's tone deaf. There's nothing that Joanna can do about my tone deafness. We could sit there all day. She could teach me all kinds of musical theories. She could teach me notes. She could teach me how to read notes. She might even be able to teach me how to play something on the piano and follow the mathematical equations that are along the way. But what she cannot do is do anything about my ears. I might hear a song and be like, I think it's G. And I'm right because I guessed right. Not because I can actually distinguish G and D and F. Is that the right ones? The notes? like the Okay, yeah. There's nothing, in the same way, the law can instruct Israel all day long on how to live, but could not do anything about Israel's hardened hearts. That was where the law came up short. And so Paul says something's changed. Something's changed with Jesus. And so now that faith has come, verse 25, we are no longer under the law, we're no longer under a custodian which raises all kinds of questions then. If we are no longer under the law, if the role of the law was to kind of do this for Israel, but now we're no longer under the law, then what purpose does it serve now? If that was the purpose it served then, what purpose does it serve now? What purpose does it serve in a Christian life? How are we meant to as the people of God with faith in Christ meant to approach the Old Testament law. I'm going to give you five approaches today. This is going to get real teachy here for a second. But five approaches that Christians have taken to the Old Testament law that I think is helpful in kind of thinking through this. So the first option is we take the option that Paul is arguing against. Keep it all. Paul is arguing. He's like, no, 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 This is not what we're meant to do. But those who have come up from Jerusalem are saying to the Galatians, no, you actually need to follow all of these things. This is actually still a stance that people take today. They still say, no, all of it is still in full effect and required for all of those who believe in Christ. But it's a pretty rare pocket. However, the spirit of that, I think, comes out in our various forms of legalism. Now, there is a significant amount of folks who grew up in the church, maybe some of you here, where Christianity felt like an exhausting list of things to do and to not do. And that was all that you sort of knew of Christianity and that all of this talk about Jesus sort of boiled down to a kind of performance that everybody around you would judge and ultimately Jesus would judge at some point in the end. And it was terrifying and it was restricting and it was confusing. How did playing cards become so bad? Right? Like some of you grew up in those kind of environments like... saw your son playing cards this week. I'm gonna have to do something about that boy because those cards, slippery slope. I don't know where it's gonna lead, but somehow go fish is going to lead to Satan worship. I just know it. I don't know how you get from here to there, but it is going to happen and we need to get those cards out of your son's hands right now, right so this grew up in those kind of environments where it just seemed like this is what Christianity was all about. The fact that you are here, if that's the form of Christianity that you grew up under, is a miracle. <laughs> There's a lot of folks who've experienced that in such a harmful and hurtful way. They're like, I'm done. I don't really want to have anything to do with Jesus in the church because of those things. You're a miracle. I'm sorry that that happened to you, but you're a miracle. The second option that we have is actually to go to the other side of the extreme, right? If we, can't, if we don't swing the pendulum this direction, then let's go all the way to the other side, which is instead of keep it all, let's just toss it all. Like, Like none of it matters that the message of Christianity is all grace and it no longer matters how we live. That, that's actually no part of it all. Just do whatever you want. Do whatever feels good. Do whatever seems right. And if you end up having sort of like a nagging feeling, like maybe that wasn't the right thing to do, just pray that feeling away. Just say, Jesus, I'm sorry, and go on ahead. And so we're just like, ah, none of it matters at all. Everyone should just do what seems right in their own eyes. There's a problem with that. If you've never read the book of Judges, you'll see Why? <laughs> The book of Judges is less like a Disney film and more like a Tarantino film. Like things just go really badly in that case. And in fact, it actually goes against the grain of the New Testament. Jesus even said in our gospel reading that that's not what he came to do, that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it and said, actually, none of it is going to weigh until everything is fully realized in it. So that kind of approach doesn't make sense. And in fact, Jesus commands several Old Testament laws, as do the rest of the New Testament. Jesus commands us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. Where does Jesus get that? Deuteronomy. (laughs) Jesus commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Where does Jesus get that? Leviticus. He's commanding the Old Testament for us. It's like, well, that doesn't really work either. So the third option is probably the most popular one that's out there. It says, okay, here's what we do as as Christians. We keep the moral law and then toss the rest. So anything that relates to like civil law, government kind of stuff, like we don't live in agrarian Canaan anymore. So like, well, let's just not go with that. We don't have kings. We need to, you know, kind of get rid of that, which makes sense. Christians now live in, you know, in a variety of nations under all kinds of government forms and serve in those things. So it's like, okay, that, ma- that makes sense. And then let's get rid of the ritual laws too. Everything that's related to temple and sacrifices, like Jesus took care of all of that stuff. So let's not do that and we'll just keep the moral ones. The problem is, is the Old Testament doesn't use those categories. There's not like a place you turn to in Deuteronomy and says, here's the moral laws, here's the civil laws, here's the ritual laws. They're all like overlapping And they intersect with one another. For example, the Ten Commandments. Do we keep those? Do we not keep those? Well, the first couple are about ritual laws. Don't worship other gods and don't make idols. Well, idol worship, idol making is a part of ritual worship kinds of things. Do we now do that? Like, is that, that, like, no, that's still in effect for Christians. That's not what we do. We still worship the one true God. So that doesn't really hold a lot of water. So the fourth option is, well, let's just keep what the New Testament keeps. Like, if the New Testament keeps it, then that's good for us. Let's, let's keep that. And then the New, Ter- New Testament does specifically say, like, hey, this is no longer part of what's required for God's people, things like circumcision. Other things it does change, like dietary laws get changed really drastically. Divorce gets more restrictive in the New Testament, saying that it was this way here under Moses, but this is way under Jesus. And so the thought is, well, we should just follow whatever it affirms. The challenge is, is, the New Testament is usually, it's letters. It's not systematic sort of discussion around those things. It's not sitting there going like, okay, I'm going to go through all of these laws and say which one we keep and which one we don't and, and all of that. In fact, uh, the New Testament doesn't name several Old Testament laws that the church has actually kept for its, like, has seen as a foundational sort of way in which we approach ethics, for example, the New Testament doesn't go into a lot of laws around sexuality. It refers to them as a group, but the church has always said that references to all of those laws in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. It doesn't say a lot about economics, but the church has found those laws in the Old Testament to be guiding principles. There's laws in the Old Testament that actually undergird our treatment of persons with disabilities and our treatment of the unborn that those are actually things that find their anchor in Old Testament discussions. So we're like, but they're not mentioned in the New Testament. So we're like, well, that doesn't work either. So the fifth one I think is the best approach, which is we keep what the New Testament does not toss. (laughs) Now I know the toss word is a little bit strong, but what the New Testament doesn't say is already fulfilled in some way in Christ. We have to recognize that the death and resurrection of Jesus brought about monumental changes But those monumental changes are things that the New Testament writers are constantly wrestling with, and the way they wrestle with it is by turning to the Old Testament and trying to make sense of things through the lens of the New Testament. In fact, they didn't have a New Testament. They were writing it. So all they had was the Old Testament to go off of. So for example, in this discussion that is actually paramount in Galatians, what is required of Gentiles who've become Christians? Acts chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem gets together and discusses this very question. What do we do? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to keep dietary laws? Do they have to keep Sabbath? What are they doing? They're having this huge debates and they end up coming to a conclusion that here's what's required of Gentiles who become Christians. They should not eat food sacrificed idols, okay? They should not eat strangled animals. They should not drink blood, and they should, uh, not pers- they, they should stay away from sexual immorality. Those are the four things that they come up in the letter that they write. Does that seem like an odd list? Like, read this, like, okay, no strangled animals? Like, I, I think we're all on the same page as that one. No blood consuming. Okay, like, where did they come up with that? They went to the Old Testament, and they looked at the laws that required for Gentiles living in the land of Canaan. And they said, oh, here's what we're going to do. It's the Old Testament that became their guide and their source for those ethics and trying to understand and wrestle with those questions. This is why Timothy can say that all Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching and training and righteousness. This is why the Old Testament is still Christian Scripture. It's still something that we read and study and resource from. So if that's true if the kind of the general approach of the New Testament writers and the approach of the church is to keep those laws, then why would Paul tell us that we're not under the law? Why would Paul say that the law is no longer our custodian? What's, what's, the, what's the deal here? And Paul specifically says it's not because the law was bad. He says the reason that we're no longer under the custodian is because faith has come. Because faith has come. Particularly faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. And that phrase there actually recalls for us something that Paul said earlier. Earlier, he says it's through faith that we have received part of God's inheritance already. That we've actually received part of the promise. If we've received something already, and it's what we received that has actually made all of the difference. He says this, Galatians 3.8, he redeemed us so that the blessing of Abraham would come to Gentiles through Christ Jesus. Remember the first problem of the law? Is it separated Jews and Gentiles? Oh, but now Jesus has come and he's torn down that wall of hostility. And God has actually reconciled all things to himself in Jesus. He's redeemed not just Jews. He's redeemed Gentiles. The first thing that's happened is that Jesus has come and he's taking care of that. And then he goes on and says, and that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What was the second problem with the law? our hearts. The problem was not the law itself. The problem was us, that we actually couldn't keep the law. And what Paul is doing is he's reminding us of actually what the prophets foretold, that Jeremiah said that when God comes to establish a new covenant, that he would actually engrave his instructions on our hearts that rather than engraving instructions on stone tablets, he would in some way engrave them in us, transforming us, changing us, that we might actually do the law from the inside. Ezekiel says, what I'm going to do is when I come, I'm going to give you a new heart. A heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. And I'm going to put a new spirit within you so that you can keep the covenants. What distinguishes the old and the new covenants is not law versus grace or law versus faith. What distinguishes the covenants is Jesus and the spirits. What's changed? That's changed. Jesus has come. He's died. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He's going to come again. But we forget something in there. When he ascended, he sent the spirits. And now the spirit of God resides in each one of us. It's not just residing in some building somewhere. that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your life. Friends, this is the gospel. It's not only are we celebrating in the gospel the way in which the finished work of Jesus and his death and resurrection has changed everything, but we're also celebrating that the gift of the Holy Spirit has changed us. That actually now something is different in us that rather than having hearts of stone, we have hearts of flesh. That rather than needing a babysitter, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. This is the good news of the gospel, is that we're not working with the same resources anymore. Last week, at the end of the sermon, Pastor Glenn said one of our challenges sometimes is that we begin our life in faith of saying, Yeah, yeah, yeah Jesus, I don't have it. I need you. I, I don't have this altogether. Please forgive me. We're like, okay, we've received the gospel. All right, Jesus, we've got to hear from now. We go on our own. And there's that temptation to think, Gosh, if that's, if that's the thing, is that these Old Testament laws are still here and all of that, that's important. What Paul wants us to emphasize, what Paul wants us to see is the most important thing is that the new covenant has come and you have a new spirit living inside of you that is actually enabling you to live in a different way. Paul says it this way at one point in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, God's grace to me was not without effect. He says, I I beheld God's grace and it changed me. It was not without impact. And then he goes on and he says, and so I worked harder than everybody. And that's where most of us kind of go from in the Christian faith, right? God's grace, my work. Urgh, I got this. And then Paul stops. He says, No, 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 wait. God's grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, but oh wait, that wasn't me at work. That was the Spirit of God at work in me, changing me from the inside out, changing my will, changing my desire, changing my affections. Slowly, surely, patiently, gently, as Paul says in another letter, letter from one glory to glory to glory, to glory. But friends, God has not left you on your own. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And what you can't always see is the transformative work that he is doing to change your heart, your affections, your desires, your dispositions, to heal you from your hurts, to set you free from your hang-ups, to empower you into new habits of living, to actually transform your life. And what Paul is calling us to pay attention to, he says, don't forget the Holy Spirit, but invite him and continually invite and welcome his work into your life. Let's keep that in mind as we come to the table this morning.